Hello, music enthusiasts. Welcome to Sound Encounters, a music podcast where I explore new and classic releases, different genres, and your favorite artists and bands. I'm your host, Cesar Torres, and thank you for joining me for the last encore of this, um, I don't know what to call it, encore season. Uh, it, it is kind of weird to kind of label this sort of period uh, of Sound Encounters because I haven't been doing any original uh, or new Sound Encounters episodes. I've just been re-airing past Sound Encounters features. And uh, today is the last one before I go back to telling you guys about artists, bands, albums, what have you. And for this last one, I thought it would be nice to revisit a favorite feature of mine, which is the Essentials feature. Uh, And for, I've only done two. White Light, White Heat by The Velvet Underground and Spiderland by Slint. And since I uh, the, the one about Spiderland was fairly recent, I decided that I was going to do this encore on White Light, White Heat. And it's funny because Essentials was essentially <laughs> born because I wanted to talk about this album specifically. This is quite possibly my favorite album of all time. And, and I really wanted to talk about it on the show. And so I created Essentials. But of course, I'm happy to discuss uh, other albums that I love. And, you know, I, I love Spider-Land by Slint, so I covered that one as well. In fact, next week, I'll be talking about another Essentials album because every 10 episodes or so, and I just decided this on the 20th episode of Sound Encounters, I would talk uh, about an Essentials album every 10 episodes. I won't spoil what next week's Essentials is, but I will say it is a hip-hop album, so you have that to look forward to. Um, it also gave me an excuse to talk about The Velvet Underground, which is one of my... You know what? Actually, I, I'm comfortable saying that The Velvet Underground is my favorite band. I love introducing this band to friends. I recently got somebody into this band, and I said, Hey, listen, you should check out Femme Fatale and After Hours. And After Hours is another song that I've talked about on this show before. And and you essentially want to give them the, the lighter... Uh, softer stuff, the more gentler Velvet Underground songs, because you don't want them to listen to the dark and then the wacky experimental stuff, because that that might push some people away. Um, in fact, like other songs like Sunday Morning or I'm Waiting for the Man, actually a lot of songs on the Banana album and their third self-titled album, you can just give to people and like, hey, listen to this, and they'll most likely um, like it. I also think, if I remember correctly, another reason I chose to start talking about White Light, White Heat was because I had just watched a Velvet Underground documentary. It was part of an under review. It was part of the under review documentary series, and some of those you could find on Amazon Prime. That's how I watched uh, the Velvet Underground one, um, and it's fantastic. There were interviews with Mo Tucker, Doug Yule producers who had worked on the album um they kind of go over the reason why white light white heats cover art looks like that and then uh, of course the musicians the producers gave their accounts on the music that they were making on the music they were producing and what it was like to work with lou i highly recommend that documentary very well made if you are a fan of the underground watch that i think there's another Velvet Underground uh, documentary coming out sometime this year. I, I kind of was keeping track on that sometime late last year, which is like a month ago. Um, 
but I haven't I haven't heard anything about it since. So hopefully we're still getting that Velvet Underground documentary because I would love to watch more Velvet Underground stuff. But yeah, that's enough gushing. Let's play back the White Light, White Heat feature. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Sound Encounters. Before the break, I mentioned that I was going to be unveiling a whole new segment for the show. So when I enter the show, I usually say that I talk about uh, new and classic music releases. And, and I do talk more about new releases than old releases or classic releases. And I did have that one episode about Joy Division's Closer on their on its 40th anniversary. But I don't have a dedicated segment where I talk about classic releases. And I thought it was time to change that. So now I'm going to be talking about essential albums. Albums that you should be familiar with that everyone should listen to at least once in their life. An album that is important to its genre, to the and to, even to the t- entire musical landscape. And to kick off this essential album segment, I, I want to talk about White Light, White Heat by The Velvet Underground. This is the second full-length album released by The Velvet Underground, and it was released in 1968. If you don't know who The Velvets are, I'll give you a short little background on the Velvets. They were a New York art rock, experimental rock, and avant-garde rock band. The Velvet Underground was born when guitarist Lou Reed met Welsh classical music student John Cale. Under Lamonte Young's tutelage, Cale brought the drone using his electric viola to the band, and Reed was susceptible to this strange technique as he would tune his guitar so it could produce a droning sound. They also recruited Sterling Morrison, one of Reed's classmates from Syracuse University, who also played guitar. He would switch off between lead and rhythm guitars, as well as the bass guitarist. And Maureen Mo Tucker on drums, who was the sister of Sterling Morris's friend, Jim Tucker. And let me tell you guys, Mo was a freaking badass because she's not a traditionally trained drummer. She would replicate the drumming styles of her favorite drummers on, on potted pans when she was younger. And because of of her background in drumming and, and because she was a woman, Lou Reed saw the significance of having a drummer like Mo Tucker in the band and, and decided to bring her on board. They played a lot of gigs around New York City uh, and then would get fired from these gigs because they were a, a bit too weird. I mean, you got somebody playing electric viola, you got a female drummer who's not playing the drums in, in the correct way. They didn't really survive playing gigs around New York City. Luckily for them, a person associated with Andy Warhol was in the crowd watching them perform, and they were so captivated or intrigued by their performance that they went up to them and introduced them to Andy Warhol, who would promote them and produce, produce in quotes, because he had little to no producing duties on on the, the first record. And then he introduced them to Nico, and the rest is history. While the first album didn't sell a lot of copies when it was first released, it went on to become a landmark in rock music. I guess the band's relationship with Warhol and Nico deteriorated after the release of their first album, so they ended up separating themselves from those two, although Reed and Kale would help contribute to, to Nico's early solo career 
uh, uh, records. So then now we're setting the stage for this second album, White Light, White Heat. And there's no Warhol, no Nico. And this record is usually cited as the purest Velvet Underground release. And now with this new record, there were six songs that were very different in tone. Yeah, it's true. A lot of these songs include the provocative lyrics that were prevalent on the Banana album. But, you know, there were moments on that record that had some genuine beauty and wonder. The songs here, though, are aggressive and ugly and even weirder than the songs on the Banana album. Honestly, if you haven't listened to that record, the 1967 Velvet Underground debut with Nico, no more excuses. Listen to that album as soon as you can. It, it really is an important record in rock music history. Hell, you should even pause this podcast and listen to that record. It's that good. You need to listen to it like right now if you haven't. All right, now that we got some of the background out of the way, let's break down this track list. The record starts with White Light, White Heat. It's an explosive start with this frenzy of a track. There's no buildup. There's no warning. It just throws you into what sounds like a song that's been playing for like a minute already. I mean, there's so much going on right from the start. We have the, the piano playing this upbeat melody. We can hear the cymbal crashes from Mo as well. And the guitars sound like they are, are screeching along in the background. At first, I couldn't tell if it was if it was a guitar or Kale's viola, but Kale does not play a viola on this track. He plays the piano. Uh, but, but, but in any case, it gives this song its, its wild personality as the guitars feel minuscule compared to the piano and, and the vocal delivery. Plus, the guitars don't really take any shape or form for most of the song. It's just this ferocious background cluster that, that can be disorienting. And that's what this track is. It, it is very disorienting. Lou Reed has stated that the song is about shooting methamphetamine with the white light representing the feeling of that meth high and that white light messing your, up your mind, making you go blind, tickling down to your toes and, and making you go insane. And this, of course, isn't the first time Lou wrote about drugs and the experiences under the influence. There's that famous song off the Banana album called Heroin, a song that record labels were afraid to put on the record because consumers wouldn't want to buy it and, and promoters wouldn't want to promote it. But luckily, Verve and, and, and Tom Wilson, the producer for this record and the, and the Banana album, kept it on the record and understood the, the genius of that song. And while the song Heroin is explicitly about heroin, White Light, White Heat isn't exactly clear on what that song is about, and the, the lyrics are a bit, uh, the tiniest bit more abstract than what you would listen to on the Banana record. And that's not a bad thing. If anything, it, it shows the band's growth as artists and as, as songwriters. They are writing lyrics that require a bit more thought, and because of that, many listeners might have different interpretations of, on, on what that song is about. You know, except Luke confirmed that the song was about meth, but you, you get what I'm saying. This is also a song that probably went on to, to heavily inspire the punk rock movement with its fast-paced tempo and ab abrasive guitars. I think it's a testament to this band's brilliance that the first record with Nico, despite it having low sales, whoever bought that record went on to start a band. And with this record, it inspired a whole entire genre. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that the, the, the Stooges, Ramones, and the Sex Pistols were influenced by this record and some of the songs on this record. Very iconic opener. Really sets the stage for what else is uh, about to come. And then we get into the second track, The Gift, and we get more of that Velvet Underground experimentation. 
If you're listening to this song with earbuds, you'll notice that the right channel plays instrumentation while the left has Mr. John Cale narrating a story. The story in question is, is, a, is a story that Reed wrote for a, a college writing assignment. And the plot of the story follows Waldo Jeffers, a college student who has become paranoid after being separated from his girlfriend, Marsha Bronson, for two months. He fears that she would not remain faithful, even though she promised that she would. And, and he begins hatching a scheme that involved shipping himself to Marsha's front door, where he would kiss her and catch a movie with her. Unfortunately for Waldo, the story ends with Marsha's friend Sheila plunging a sheet metal cutter through the box and straight into Waldo's skull, killing him. You know, despite its horrific ending, you gotta admit that it's pretty funny. Not only is the concept of a person shipping themselves because they are concerned that their significant other is cheating on them is pretty absurd and crazy, but the band has a, has a bit of fun with this song as well. When Kale starts talking about how Waldo understood Marsha and how she needed him and he wasn't there for her, there's a comical like, aww sound, sound effect that never fails to make me laugh every time I hear this song. Also, when Kale reads how Sheila plunged the cutters through the cardboard box, you hear a sound effect that is supposed to mimic the sound that I, it would make, I guess, but it adds some immersion to the song that otherwise wouldn't have been there and, and this story that I didn't expect and enjoyed. Fun fact, the sound effect is actually Lou Reed stabbing a cantaloupe with a knife. And the person that helped them out with this sound effect was Frank Zappa, who happened to be there while they were recording this song. So uh, we have a bit of a, a Frank Zappa influence in this record. The instrumentation is an improvised jam session that the group had recorded. And if you ever just want to hear this alone, just take out your left earbud. But you can hear Reed and Morrison just going at it with the guitars, sometimes producing ear-piercing screeches, and it's an all-around impressive solo. But the highlight of this instrumentation is that catchy bass line. God, is it so good. I was surprised to find out that it was Kale on the bass guitar for this song, but it's just so dirty. One of the best bass lines I've ever heard. And I think it's pretty funny that I overlooked this song when I first heard the record i would either skip it and i and i thought negatively about it but now it's actually one of my favorite songs of all time so silly me moving on we have lady godiva's operation which happens to be a haunting yet calming song the lyrics refer to a botched lobotomy on a transgender woman i know and you can't help but feel bad for this character as the beginning of the song takes us through sort of a day in the life of Lady Godiva. And then we finally learn that she's confident enough to go through with this procedure. And then it ends up horribly. And it gets descriptive near the end. One line that gets under my skin is how the, the ether that the doctor is using is causing her unconscious body to, to wither and writhe. And an another line that is horrifying is, is where the song describes how Lady Godiva wakes up in the middle of the operation and her screams echo down the hall. It's the right amount of description that helps me vividly picture the scene. Like I can imagine this dingy and dirty hospital where the operation is taking place. There's a haziness to the setting too, as, as I picture the ether just spilling all over the place. It's a song that actually makes me feel physically sick to my stomach, which I'm not sure if that was the band's intention, but the, the execution is, is very well done. 
And I described the song as calming, and that's kind of due to the low fidelity of the drums, guitars, and the viola. It gives it this fuzzy characteristic to the song. Although I will say the viola produces this eerie drone that enhances this bone-chilling song. On top of that, Kale's voice is quiet and soothing. Although the, the moment things start going wrong for Lady Godiva, uh, Lou Reed appears on this track. And and I don't know about you, but it, he took me by surprise. You know, he's not shouting, but his vocals are definitely mixed a bit higher than Kale's or the instrumentation. So it was a bit of a shock when he comes out of nowhere. And surprisingly, this song has its comedic moments, most notably Kale's impersonation of an oxygen machine that kind of takes the edge off of this song especially after you learn that Kale's making these sound effects with his mouth. Lou Reed has stated that this was his favorite part of the song too, and, and, and listening to Kale's impersonation also made him laugh. A very unique rock song, very avant-garde, one that I, that I keep returning to, and sometimes find myself humming, and, and once I find myself humming it, I have to listen to it again. A brilliant song. The next two tracks, I feel, have this connection between them. Here She Comes Now is a gentle piece with whispered delivery and lo-fi guitars. Nothing too crazy, and, and honestly, I like it because it's a bit of tranquility that gives us a break from the madness of this record. However, I Heard Her Call My Name delves right back into that chaos as it's a loud and aggressive song with atonal guitars, tribal and hypnotic drumming, and wild vocal delivery from Lou. This is another song that could be classified as proto-punk and could have easily influenced early punkers. The reason why I think they are connected is the contrast of soft and gentle to loud and abrasive. Uh, I Heard Her Call My Name begins with Lou singing Here She Comes Now Now, making for a bit of a nice transition between both of those songs. And, and Lou seems to be talking about a woman in both of these songs. Or is he? My initial interpretation was that both of these songs had to deal with Lou's deteriorating relationship with a woman with Here She Comes Now, describing the butterflies he feels when they first meet, and, and then I Heard Her Call My Name is the anxiety or discontentment he feels when he's with her, realizing the spark is gone. I like my interpretation, even if it doesn't have much merit to it, but I, I think one interpretation that any fan can agree on is that these two songs are about drugs. Here She Comes Now is, is Lou blissfully waiting for the drug to kick in, and He's feeling it coming on and he's thinking, ah, you know, here she comes now. And I heard her call my name as, as Lou under the influence of, of whatever he's taking, causing this manic and frenzied trip that's personified in this song. You know, and I definitely like both of these interpretations. I, I of course, like mine. It probably is the simplest interpretation, but I'm curious, do you guys have any interpretations of both of these songs? Have you ever really thought of these songs being connected is there a larger narrative maybe that, that uh, I'm not catching on? Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in what your interpretations are. You could send me them on Twitter. You can uh, send me an anchor voice message, and I, I might post this episode up on Reddit. And so if, if I post it on the thread, you can tell me your interpretations as well. And finally, track six, we get to Sister Ray, the 17-minute chaotic grand finale to this record. Some facts, the band did this song all in one take, all improvised. They left in all the mistakes that they made. Reed is on guitar and vocals. Morrison is on guitars. Tucker is on drums. And Kale is on an organ that was routed through a distorted guitar amplifier. And because of that, the organ would be as loud or louder than the guitars and, and or lose vocals. And I'm a fan of it. You know, the louder the better. 
The recording of this track also has a funny story to it as the recording engineer, Gary Kelgren, walked out on them recording the song and said, I don't have to listen to this. Call me when you're done fucking around. The thing is, I, and I'm sure many other Velvet fans, could listen to the song all day. It's very easy to get lost in this masterpiece. I couldn't believe what I was hearing when I first heard this song. And, and afterwards, I had a f- newfound respect for the band who, who blew me away on the Banana album. I, I fell in love with this band you know, when I first heard Venus and Furs, but holy crap, was this something else. I'll try to describe what happens in this song as best as I can, but honestly, it, it's something that you should experience for yourself if you haven't heard this song before. The lyrics describe in orgy where everyone is shooting up on heroin we get introduced to these characters duck and sally rosie and miss rayon the sailor cecil and of course sister ray at some point during the orgy cecil pulls a gun on the sailor shoots him and the sailor dies and everyone else is like no don't do that you'll stain the carpet eventually the cops come it's just a wild and crazy night This was also a very controversial song at the time as it referenced uh, fellatio, which was a big no-no. And you have to wonder if if Reed knew this and sort of downplayed it by referencing the male organ as a ding-dong. Like, it was pretty jarring to hear him say that the first couple times I heard this song, but now I'm just like, yeah, you know, know, sucking on a ding-dong. The music perfectly accompanies this story of one wacky night. You know, the guitars are hectic and distorted, the drums are propelling, and the organ is dizzying. But remember, this is an improvised song, and it's just impressive how this song evolves from the initial riff at the beginning. This song is an avant-garde rock masterpiece. Unfortunately, this is the last time we hear the Velvets like this, as shortly after this album was released, John Cale left the band. John Cale introduced the band to this experimental drone that gave this band its experimental edge on its first two records. And I'm not saying that I dislike Doug Ewell, but I mean, the the, the whole band just changed after Doug Ewell came on and, and gave it, it its softer and more indie rock aesthetic. And I do love the Grey Album. I think the Grey Album is a fantastic record, but nothing beats these first two Velvet records, especially this record. This entire album is a masterpiece. It's my favorite Velvet album. And it's just one of those funny things where I didn't think much of it when I first heard it. But after, you know, diving into the individual parts of this record, delving delving into the lyrics and having more of an uh, appreciation for the instrumentation and the songwriting and the improvisation, this quickly became one of my all-time favorites. One of the most important rock acts of all time. Definitely my favorite rock band. You can see why I wanted to do the first essential album segment on this record and on this band. This record and and this band just mean so much to me. And and I want to close off with this quote from rock critic Lester Bangs, who was talking about the Banana album when he said this quote, but uh, you know, it's it's very true. I think it applies to this record as well. But Mr. Bangs said modern music starts with the Velvets. And I couldn't agree more. Well, that does it for this Encore edition and this whole month of Encores. Thank you all for being patient. 
I have a wonderful show lined up for you next week, so stay tuned. Also, remember to follow the Sound Encounters uh, Twitter and Instagram pages for updates, and I do a bit of commentary as well, post nice pictures, as well as share memes, Um, and you can keep up to date with me on social media. Make sure you rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you liked what you heard, and make sure to tell your music enthusiast friends as well. I would appreciate it, and you might even get a shout-out on the podcast. And if you submit your review through anchor.fm forward slash soundencounters or soundencounters.com, your review might be featured on a future episode. That is, of course, recording your review and submitting it to anchor.fm forward slash soundencounters. There's a link in the podcast description that'll take you to where you need to go. That does it for this week. I'll see you all next week.